Eat it. Okay, so we come to the third and the last of the three things that are mentioned in question 85 that are necessary if we are to escape God's wrath and curse. We uh, were introduced to these a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, I guess, with question 85 when we looked at that one. So let's confess that question first that asks how we can escape God's wrath and curse. Question 85 what doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. Now, what is stated here? becomes a new duty for every person because we have all sinned. And this wasn't a duty that we had before we sinned. This is a duty that we had after we sinned, what we just confess here that is our responsibility. Uh, and we sinned, and yet God also provided a way of escape for us. He provided redemption through Jesus Christ. So that being so, it is the duty of every person to seek that salvation from God. If he is so good as to provide it for us, then we ought to look for the blessing of that salvation. So it is now our duty then to avail ourselves of the deliverance and reconciliation that he so graciously offers. To refuse that and to reject and not use the means that he has given us to that end is an affront to God. And it brings us under even greater condemnation than we were in already on account of our sin. I want you to consider that each of the three things that are required of us have to do with our coming to the Lord to be saved. That's what these things are about that we're looking. What must we do to escape God's wrath and curse? What must we do to be saved? These three things that we have just mentioned. So let's confess what our catechism says about each one. First, there is question 86 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. That's very obviously about coming to Christ, isn't it? Coming to Christ for salvation. As we saw when we studied this question a couple of weeks ago, we must rest upon Christ and what he has done and on him alone if we wish to be saved from our sins. He came in our flesh and he is the only person ever who is completely without sin. Having acquired a human body and spirit, he was the only human being ever who was acceptable in God's eyes because without sin. All the rest of us are radically defiled and guilty and ripe only for judgment. God in his mercy sent Christ to be the first fruits then of a new community, a community of righteousness, something that did not and never had existed in the world except when God first made Adam and Eve before they fell. He accepts Jesus and even then they were innocent and not yet righteous because they hadn't been tested. 
he accepts Jesus as the representative then of all who enter into the congregation of people that he established, the church that he established. This came at a very high price for Jesus in that as our representative, he had to be punished for our sins, to pay the full penalty of our sins, which he did on the cross. And God's way for us to enter into his congregation of righteousness is what? If we are of age and ability to understand, how do we enter into that kingdom of righteousness that he has established in a world of sin and darkness? By faith, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And very much related to faith is repentance. That's the next question that we dealt with last week. The second thing that the catechism mentions in question 85 that we are to do if we are to be saved. Question 87, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Now, I said before that all three of these requirements, this is the second one, have to do with our coming to Christ for salvation. With repentance, then, it is our turning against and leaving our old way of life and the things we trusted in to come to Christ, the new way. Uh, that we might join him in serving God and be saved by him. It is not that we perfectly obey. Our reliance is upon Christ. We turn from ourselves to him to rely on him. But if we come to Christ for salvation, you see, it goes without saying that we come with the intent to obey. What would the salvation be? that would only want to be forgiven for sins and would not want to be reconciled to God as our God to serve him. We have left the kingdom of Satan and sin when we come to Christ and entered the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness. That's repentance. We leave one kingdom to come to another kingdom. If a person does not repent, then they have not really come to Christ. You can come and ask him to forgive you, but there will be no forgiveness without repentance. The whole purpose of Christ saving us is that we might be restored to him and to his father. And then the third requirement for us, if we are to escape God's wrath and curse, besides repentance and faith, which really facilitates both repentance and and faith, is the diligent use of all the outward means. That's what we're looking at today. Question 88 tells us what the ordinary outward means of grace are. It says, What are the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. These outward means, the word, sacraments and prayer also have to do as you can see with our coming to christ for salvation how do we come to him he himself uses these means 
so that we can connect with him, with the benefits of his redemption to us. The word communicateth that's used here is used in the old way that it was used when our catechism was written, not to refer to a mere exchange of words, but to sharing. You communicate with people when you share with them. For example, in those days, if a son was sending money to his parents to support them, then it would have been said that he was communicating with them because he was giving of his substance, something that he had. In the same way, then, Christ gives us the benefits of salvation. He communicates to us the blessings of salvation, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, assurance, growth in grace, and the hope of eternal life. He gives all of those things. How? How does he communicate them to us? Through the means of grace, through the outward means of grace. None of you came to Christ without hearing the gospel, receiving the word of God. You called on God in prayer when you came to him. He shares these benefits with us, you see, through these means. They're used by him so that we can have eternal life. And if we don't have them, then how can we, how can we have eternal life? The means are his instruments that he uses to bring these benefits to us. Those who are truly of his kingdom make diligent use. That's what they're characterized by. They make diligent use of the word, sacraments, and prayer. And through these, they find repentance. And they find belief and faith. And then they grow in their salvation and continue in their salvation. That's the way that God has chosen to work. And these means, this is these outward means, this is our topic for today in this question that we're looking at. So I'll, I'll have more to say about it after our scripture reading. The passage that I've selected is Colossians 1, 1 through 18, and then we'll move over to Colossians 2, verse 11 through 14. So in reading, in this reading, you will be able to see examples of the means of grace and how the Lord uses them to bring salvation to his people, to us, his people. So give attention now as I read to you, beginning in Colossians 1, 1. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it has also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now, before we go to our other reading, you you notice there what brought this salvation to them. The word of God that they heard. And then what did Paul do when they heard the word and showed that they believed? He prayed for them that they might be filled with all the fullness of God's grace and understanding of his will, that they might grow and walk in the truth. And now we jump to Colossians 2, 11, And here we see something of the sacraments, baptism in particular. Colossians 2, verse 11. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And there we end the reading of God's holy word. May he bless the reading as well as now the preaching of God's word. Understand that my intention is not to expound everything that is in these passages that I read. could spend a lot of time talking about the excellence of Christ, which is a big theme here. But we're talking about what connects us to Christ our Savior, the means that he uses to bring the knowledge of him and to bring us into union and fellowship and communion with him. That's what we're looking at today from this passage. The first thing I want you to see from our text is how the Lord uses his word to bring salvation to his people. You can see in verses three through six how God used his word to bring salvation to the Colossians. Verse 3 through 5, Paul is thanking God because he has heard that these brothers and sisters have shown themselves to be those who are on their way to heaven. They they have professed their faith and they're living for God. He knows this because as he says in verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. They were not trusting in their own goodness, but they had faith in Jesus Christ. And he heard of that, realizing that They did not have a right standing with God apart from Christ. They had trusted in Christ. They were trusting in Him and in His work on the cross to save them from their sins. They also showed the reality of their faith in that they loved all the saints. And that was an evidence of the truth of their faith. It's an indispensable mark of a true believer that they would love 
their brothers and sisters. So Paul is thanking God and praising God for them, just like we do when we hear of, some, of those who have trusted in Christ. It gives us great joy and delight. But as we are looking at the means of grace today, I want you to notice how God brought his, this salvation to them that Paul recognized. What means did the Lord use to bring this salvation to them? Now, uh, let me just back up here a minute. Are you familiar with the, the, what I mean by the means that God uses? When you, speaking of the word means in that, in that way. If I ask you, by what means did you come to church? What would be the answer to that? Well, most of you, it would probably be that you came in a car. Maybe you came on a bus or, or something like that. Maybe one or two that, that have done that. Maybe you drove a car. Maybe you rode in a car. That was the means by which you came to church. So what means did God use to get his salvation to these people at Colossae? Paul saw that they had believed. How did God get that, that salvation to them? Well, Paul tells us right there in verses 5 through 7. He says that they heard about the hope of heaven in Christ in the word of the truth of the gospel. You see that in verse 5? Which has come to you, he said. The word of God came, as it has also in all the world. So it's going all over the world. And is bringing forth fruit, as it, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew that grace of God in truth as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So Epaphras had ministered the word to the people at Colossae. There is so much here, but you see that it is by the hearing of the word which came to them that Paul says they're bearing fruit. That was the means that was used, by hearing the word and believing the word. As soon as it came to him, them, they heard it, they came to know the grace of God through the word. They learned that salvation was in Christ for all who believe. So they turned from their sin and they trusted in him. How else could they know that if they had not received the word? And now the word, he says, is continuing to bear fruit in them as they learn more of Christ and receive his instruction through the word. That's how they receive it. He mentioned that Epaphras, the minister of the gospel, was the one who preached the word to them. That's how the Colossians received it to start with. God sent a minister to them who preached the gospel to them. They believed the message, and now they're growing in the word as it increases among them. But I want you to notice something else. Paul also points out that this is the way that the whole world is receiving the grace of God. There's not another way. It is through the proclamation of the word of the gospel. The, that is the means of grace that he uses. Did you catch that in verse 6? He says to the Colossians that it has come to you as it has also in all the world. And that it is also bearing fruit all over the world in the same way that it bore fruit in their lives. So we've got a pattern here. Some, what does God do if he wants to bring his salvation to people? He sends his word to them. And they hear and receive the word and believe it. That's how they come to Christ. It was this method of preaching the gospel that Jesus commanded the ministers of his church to use in the great commission at the end of the gospels. Men will seek out many different ways to try to bring people into the kingdom of God. 
But this is the way that God uses, this is the way that God appointed. When he said, for example, our Lord Jesus said in Mark 16, 15 through 16, go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. It was through people hearing, it was not through people hearing voices from heaven or seeing visions or blinding lights like Paul did that people would be saved. It was through the preaching of the gospel by ordinary ministers of the gospel that these people came to believe because that's the means that Jesus appointed. Maybe we would like to have those exciting ways, but this is the way that he appointed to be used in his church. This simple method is one that God has appointed. While he can send blinding lights and voices from the sky, this is not the way he ordinarily works. And note well, that even when he does send blinding lights and voices from the sky, like he did from Paul, with Paul to get our attention, the gospel still needs to be brought to us. Paul did not actually learn the gospel from the blinding light and the voice from heaven. He was sent, rather, to a man, a humble man named Ananias, who was to preach the gospel to him. And Ananias proclaimed the gospel and baptized him. God could have spoken the gospel from heaven by his voice to Paul, but instead he used a simple, ordinary minister named Ananias to preach to him. The Lord still uses his word in the same way today. I can say this with certainty, because when Jesus gave the command to go into all the world to preach the gospel, he also told us how long we're to keep doing this. In Matthew 28, he told us the extent of the time. He commanded that the gospel be preached to all nations, and he promised that he would be with us as we do, and for how long? He said until the end of the age. That means that we're to keep on preaching the gospel, we're to keep on using this method, this means, until the end of the age, and Jesus will be with us to use that method. The word of God, not some other method that we come up with. Notice that the word is used not only to bring people to salvation, but what else? Also to teach them how to live in that salvation. As Jesus says in the Great Commission, to observe all that I have commanded you. That means that he not only intends to use his word to bring us to salvation, but also to help us grow after we have become Christians. As in the day of the Colossians, so now the word not only brings forth fruit by leading us to Christ at conversion, but also by continuing to bear fruit and help us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior and to walk with him. God's word, whenever he is pleased to use it, is powerful to transform the lives of his people. Knowing that this is so, then we ought to be very eager to receive the word, to proclaim the word, and to use it in the lives of our children. We should read it. We should listen to it preached. We should go to hear it preached in our own church. We should meditate it on it. We should talk of it in our family when we sit down, when we rise up, when we walk by the way, both at set times as well as when we go about our daily business. How could we knowing that this is a means that God uses to bring about fruit 
in our lives and in the lives of others do anything else than make diligent use of it? Why would we set the Word aside and ignore it and let our Bibles gain dust when God has told us that this is the way that He is pleased to bring fruit into our lives? You see, this, these things are very clear in the Scriptures. They only get muddled when men take them and try to begin to, to think about their own methods and how they can improve upon what God has appointed. This is how He is pleased to work. This is the way that gives glory to Him. Now, we'll be looking at much more detail at how God actually uses His Word in our lives and how we ought to receive it in future questions that the Catechism has about the Word. But this is only an introduction here. So we'll move on now to, as we're looking at the three different things here, the, the Word, sacraments, and prayer, then we'll move on to now the sacraments. Closely related to the Word are the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, if you were paying attention before, I've already mentioned baptism a couple of times. We saw it when we looked at Jesus' great commission to preach the gospel to all the nations. All the passages that refer to that say that we're to baptize them. I also mentioned to you that when Ananias came to bring the word to Paul and God called Paul into his kingdom, he immediately instructed Paul to be baptized. Ananias was told to do this right away on that very day. This was always done in the New Testament. When a person was called to Christ for salvation, they were commanded to profess their faith by baptism. That was how they, in a formal way, said, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, me and my household. You will remember when we looked at Acts 2 a few weeks ago that Peter commanded those who wanted to come to Christ to repent and be baptized. By baptism, they showed that they were looking to Christ to cleanse them. And Peter told them that they would receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit, both they and their children. We see the pattern in the New Testament. When someone believes, they and their children are baptized. The presumption is that they are given this sign because Christ has cleansed them through faith. Upon believing, they are cleansed, so the sign of cleansing is given to them, both the cleansing for the forgiveness of their sins and for transforming them, cleansing their sin by the Holy Spirit so that they will come to God and they will walk with God. Peter's words were this in Acts 2, 38 and 39. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And here's the promise. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. We learn from this then that God uses baptism to make visible to us what he does for us when we come to Christ, when we believe the word. We can't see someone being cleansed from their sin by believing the word, so he gives us an outward sign of that. Again, forgiveness and giving of the Holy Spirit who cleanses our hearts from sin, you can't see that. Baptism is something that the Lord has given to help us because, of course, washing away our sins then is made visible in this way, by this sign. 
Baptism is His way of giving us a visible mark on our body, a sign and a symbol of what He does when we repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises to do this for our children as well. Promises to you and to your children. The second passage we read in Colossians, Colossians 2, 11 through 14, compares baptism to circumcision, showing that these two represent essentially the same thing. You see, both of them have an inward and an outward aspect. There are signs, circumcision and baptism, of what God does that we cannot see. There's things that we can see that symbolize what we cannot see. So in verse 11, Paul says that we have the circumcision of Christ. And he explains it. That is the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. The old sinful part is cut away as the flesh was cut away in circumcision And uh, it's cut off that old dead way when we come to Christ. It is a circumcision made without hands, though, he's talking about here. So he's talking about the, the inward circumcision, the inward cleansing. It is symbolized. How is that symbolized now in the New Testament? It's a circumcision that was done by hands under the Old Testament. But now it's not the knife or the cutting away anymore but it is now the baptism. So he says in verse 12, Colossians 2.12, that the same idea is expressed as being buried with Christ in baptism. That inward change is expressed by baptism. We die to sin when Jesus cleanses us. Our sin is washed away from us. And as it goes on to say, we are raised with Christ through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us to bury us, to to put us to death to our old way that we might live anew and rise to serve him, trusting in him. Verse 13 says that even though we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, he has made us alive and forgiven us. Baptism represents our association with him because we're baptized in his name into association with Christ, who is the only redeemer. And it represents the cleansing we have and the new life we have in the spirit through our believing association with him. Baptism is the ceremony appointed by God by which we are transferred from the sin and kingdom of darkness into the Christ and his righteous kingdom. Baptism is the means by which the transference is made. And once it is made, we are forever after identified with God's people in his church. Of course, if we do not have faith, then our baptism actually becomes a sign that condemns us. But if we're trusting in Christ, It is God's assurance to us that we have been transferred into Christ and into all his benefits. God strengthens us and encourages us through this means of grace. And all our life long, we're to improve our baptism. In other words, we're to look back at it. We're to rest in the sign of cleansing that was given to us in our baptism. And to know that through faith in Christ, we are cleansed that our sins are washed away. Colossians does not speak about the Lord's Supper here. But the Lord's Supper is the other sacrament that goes along with baptism in the New Testament. 
Baptism is the symbol of our being brought into Christ, and the Lord's Supper is the symbol of His ongoing work of spiritually nourishing us after we have come to Him. We cannot see God spiritually nourishing us. So, as with baptism, the Lord's Supper makes visible what Christ does within us. We know that food nourishes us, and how are we nourished? By that which symbolizes Christ's death on the cross. Jesus commanded us to do the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him, so that we never forget that grace that we need to live is found in Him as crucified. It is not found in ourselves. And God is pleased to actually give us that communion with Christ that strengthens us to go on for the Lord when we come to the table. It is truly a means of grace, a help to us to live for God. And and you see, we, we need that. I mean, we can hear a sermon and we can think, oh, I've got to do better. I've got to go and do thus and thus. And that's fine for us to realize that we need to do better. But how do we do that? We look to Christ. The Lord's Supper says, here is the one that is your source of life and and salvation. The real communion with Christ is crucified is spoken of directly, or this real communion with Christ is crucified is spoken of directly in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, where it says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Remember what we talked about? A sharing, a communion, a fellowship. It could be said in the blood of Christ. We have a share, we have a participation in the shedding of Christ's blood that cleanses us. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? We're brought into fellowship with Him as the one sacrificed for us. In other words, we have all the benefits of his sacrifice. Like baptism is a sign that has corresponding reality that goes with it. The Lord does not give us empty signs. He doesn't give us a sign that doesn't have any significant meaning, a spiritual significance of what is actually done. Knowing this then, we ought to be diligent to use these means of grace, the sacraments. If God truly does give us communion when we come with faith in Christ to the table, we ought to eagerly seek the blessing of communion every time we come. I will have a lot more to say about this when we get to that part in our uh, catechism study. We'll, again, have more details about these things and what is said about the sacraments. But it's time to move on now to the third primary means of grace that's mentioned, which is prayer. Prayer is essential. What did you do if you were... uh, If you are old enough to remember these things, what did you do when God's call to salvation came to you? You cried out to God for mercy, didn't you? You prayed. Have mercy on me, a sinner. You prayed to him and asked him to pardon you and to help you. Somehow you presented your plea to him and your cry reached him. Psalm 18, 6 puts it like this. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Of course, that could be praying about any number of things. But what is the the main thing that we pray for, the fundamental thing in our life? It, It was our coming to Christ for salvation. The Lord truly does respond to our cries of faith for his promised salvation. And he keeps on hearing us after that as we go on in life for him. Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, 
and his ears are open to their cry. Isn't that encouraging? He is always ready to receive our prayers. The phone lines of heaven are always open and we need to make use of them. Psalm 34, 17 adds the fact that he hears and then acts. It says the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. So prayer then is also a means of grace, a means that God uses to get his grace to us, to get it into us, if you want to say that, a means of grace. He urges us to this duty. Jesus spoke a lot about prayer. He told us to, pers- to be persistent like the widow to the unjust judge and like the guy that comes to borrow bread in the middle of the night and you keep knocking on the door until he answers and gives you what you are asking for. He keeps his friend, he pesters him until he, he gives him the, the bread that he's looking for. Jesus also promises us that if we ask in faith, then he will give us what we ask for. For example, in Matthew 21, 22, he says, and whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. But let me explain something very, very important about this. Uh, what this believing is that is spoken of here, because this gets abused. This verse gets abused. There are those who take this to mean that you can ask for whatever you want. And as long as you believe enough, you'll get it. In other words, like ask believing and you'll get it. So, you know, oh, oh you know, I'd really like to have a, um, a $3 million house. You know, I'm going to believe, I'm gonna believe that it right into existence. And then God will have to give it to me. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. Believing prayer is prayer that looks to God to do what God has promised. He's not our genie that we come and we rub the lamp the right way and then we get everything we want. Faith is not believing whatever we want into existence. It is rather believing what God has said. And in a sense, holding God to that. If you pray for the things that God has promised and use arguments that, Lord, you have said, you have spoken, you have promised this. Things like forgiveness of sin is something he's promised. Or the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to work in us in the church. You cry out for those things that he has promised, and you are certain that you will be heard. That the Lord will work in our lives to make us holy. Pray for that. Yeah, you can pray for other things, and we should pray for things that, Lord, if it be your will, but these are the things that we know are his will. And we pray for these things and we're sure that we have them. You can see in our Colossians passage that Paul not only speaks of the word and baptism as means of grace, but he also speaks of prayer. Let's look at our text again. This is back in chapter 1 in verses 9 through 12. He prays that God would impart grace to the Colossians. And you can tell that he expects that grace to be imparted. He is praying for the grace that God promises to give to his people who trust in him. So he's sure of it. He says, having heard of their coming to Christ, he says, for this reason, because we heard that you believed. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask. And he goes on and tells them what he's praying for. Note that he is doing this diligently. We don't cease to do this since we heard it. He is asking and praying for them because he knows that God uses prayer to bring grace to his people. Look at what he prays for now. And I might add that this is typical of what he tells us that he prays for in other places 
in, the, uh, in his epistles to other churches. I remember, just a note on that, I remember as a, a new Christian when I began to look at Paul's prayers. And I realized that I was not always praying for grace in, the li- in my life and the life of God's people the way I should. What I mean by grace, you know, God's help, God's blessings of, of salvation and benefits that he gives. I realized that I needed to pray that people would be changed by the powerful working of God in their lives. That that was something I needed to pray for more. Look at what he prays for and learn that we, what we ought to be praying for. In verse 9, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What a huge thing that is. So many Christians do not understand the will of God, which he has revealed in his word. And that cripples them in their lives. So we need to pray that they would understand the will of God as it's revealed in the word. We saw before that we're to teach disciples the word, to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. But if they don't understand it and what it means and how to apply it, it won't benefit them. We can teach all day. So we need to add to that prayer as a means of grace that will help them, that the followers would understand. And then in verse 10, Paul goes on and prays that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. So, of course, the goal is not just for them to know the will of God. That will do you little good if you only knowledge puffs up, if that's all you have. But it's to know in order to do. Whenever God would speak in the Old Testament, he would say, here's the commandments in order that you might do them. Not just that you know them. Oh, I know the commandments of God. Good. Do you do them? That's that's what is important. The goal is to do the will of God. Knowing, doing are not the same thing. Both we as well as others in the church need God's grace if we're ever to obey the will of God. So prayer helps that happen. You can talk to people about what they ought to be doing, but if you don't pray for them, then they may not ever be able to do what you talk to them about. And the second part of verse 10, he prays that they would be fruitful in every good work. So doing good works is a huge part of doing the will of God. But to be fruitful in good works means that we and others are benefiting from those efforts. You're bearing fruit. It's not just doing, but bearing fruit. We want the works of God's people to be effective in encouraging others, in actually bringing real comfort to other people, bearing fruit, in serving other people, in providing for them, in rebuking them, in exhorting them, in restoring them. We could go on and on. We want that to be fruitful. We don't want to just go and say, well, I obey God. I rebuked and I exhorted and I comforted. But that they might receive the rebuke, that they might receive the comfort. In short, we want the work of believers to lead others, as we pray for one another, to lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then to help those who already know Christ to walk in his ways, to grow. Besides that, at the end of verse 10, Paul says that he also prays that they would increase in the knowledge of God. This is perhaps the most important thing of all. We are saved in order that we might know God. Our calling as human beings is to worship our great God, to delight in him, to praise him, to see and know him in his majesty and glory and the beauty and perfection of his holiness. This is the first petition that Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. 
It is the prayer that people would truly know God, that they would see His glory and reverence Him and fear Him as the great God that He is. Holy, hallowed be Your name in the eyes of all people. Knowing God is where all our happiness is, and it comes to us in part through the means of prayer, praying that it would be so. Like Moses, we need to pray for ourselves. Lord, show me your glory. Reveal yourself to me day by day that I might know you. Paul goes on in the next verse, verse 11, to pray that they will have strength to endure suffering with joy. Oh, just what we talked about this morning. Christian joy is very often presented in the Bible as joy in time of affliction and difficulty. Now, other people in the world, they have joy when things are going the way they want. They got a bonus. They got something that they were looking for. Something came about. Of course, we have joy from that too. And it's a very, a very natural kind of joy. But the joy that we are especially called to pray for is joy when trouble comes. It is the joy of those who know that they have everything in Christ and that their affliction is an opportunity to know him better. This is not something that comes naturally to us, but something that we are to pray for. Prayer is a means to obtain Christian joy. If you don't have joy, then start praying for it. Pray that God would give it. If those around you do not have joy, pray that they would have joy. It's very important for us to, to, to do this. I think I've told you before that a number of years ago, I did a, a study in the Bible about joy when I was a young Christian. And I thought, I'm going to look up the word joy in my, in my concordance. I had a Strong's concordance, like looking on the computer, doing a search for the word joy and finding all the places it's used in the Bible. And I found all the times when it was used, almost all the time, it was when they were having all kinds of problems. And that's when I realized that joy, as it's spoken about in the Bible, it's when everything's going wrong. And you still have joy in the Lord because of who he is and what he's promised and what he does through that affliction. So this very much corresponds to what we looked at this morning. Paul prays for that, that they would have strength to endure suffering with joy. In verse 12, Paul prays that they would also be thankful. Gratitude is so often missing from Christians. So often we're better at complaining than we are at giving thanks. Prayer is needed so that we can begin to grasp all that God has done for us and compare that to what we deserve had been done to us. What we deserve that God would do to us is entirely different than what he does to us. Remember Jacob, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies that you have shown to your servant. Remember how you, remember how you can complain about anything when you, I mean, you can think about anything, you can't complain about anything when you, you realize what you deserve as a sinner. Like you, you've never gotten anything that was uh, really what you deserve because what you deserve is hell. And uh, so there's no, compl- no room for complaint. Christ has delivered us from God's wrath and curse. He's working in us and he's bringing us to glory in the end. So we need to pray that both we and others would be thankful. What a wonderful thing prayer is, as well as the sacraments, as well as the word. Think about these tools that God has given us. How kind the Lord has been to give us these means of grace by which he gives himself to us as our Savior. 
Should we not make use of these means the way Paul does here in Colossians? You see, he's using means all over the place. That's what he's talking about in this whole section. If God really does impart grace to us through word, sacraments, and prayer, then shouldn't you, like Paul, give yourselves to word, sacraments, and prayer, both for yourselves and for others? But remember, the means of grace are not automatic. Something that you use in a mechanical way, like turning a knob to get gum or, or, or out of a machine or something like that. We must use the means as those who are seeking, expecting God to work through them. Reading the Bible will not do you any good unless you seek to understand it. And understanding will not do you any good unless you seek to receive it with authority as coming from God so that it impacts you and so that it transforms you. The Holy Spirit must accompany the means of grace and the reading of the word. Otherwise, it's dead. Same is true for the sacraments. It's so wrong to think that by merely receiving the Lord's Supper or getting baptized, the grace automatically flows. There are a whole lot of people over the centuries that have gone to hell and that are on their way to hell now if they continue in their current course because they're trusting that I was baptized and I go to the Lord's Supper and I partake of the Lord's Supper. So therefore, I'm right with God. No, it is only through the blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit that these means are used for our blessing. It's not like the candy machine that you go to and get what you want. You push a button and get what you want. This is why earnest prayer is to be joined always to the word and sacraments. We are to pray that God will bless us. A special warning to us as reformed people too. We recognize the priority that is given to the word in the scriptures. But sometimes we fail to pray that God would take that word and use it in our lives to cause us to grow and to cause us to to become more like Christ. And so then we become people who are filled with, with knowing things. We know the word and we spend time in the word, but we're not transformed by the word as a means of grace. So we have missed the whole purpose of the word of God. We can quote our our creeds and our confessions, but we're not able to actually, we're not actually receiving the word of life. So beware, even prayer itself can also be used in a ritualistic way. That if you say the words, then the blessings will flow. Jesus talks about that. People that pray with vain repetitions, they're not crying out to God. They're just saying their prayers. No, we need to cry out to him. That's one of the things that I ask young men sometimes that were interested in my daughters when I would interview them. For, I would say, um, do you ever pray? Oh, yeah, you know, I prayed. I said, do you say your prayers, but do you really cry out to God? Or do you just, like, say prayers? You're not even, not even thinking about what you're praying. Do you, do you, do you yearn for God to to work in your life and to transform you, you see. All along, the word, sacraments, and prayer are, you know, we we reach out to God for blessing by faith. We we crave the the blessing that comes from, from Christ, the promises that He has given us. We look to Him to impart grace to us in the way that He has promised. So how kind God is to have given us these means of grace Show your appreciation to him by making diligent use of all of the 
outward means of grace. Please stand and let's ask him to help us with this. Lord, you have given us ordinances. You have given us means by which we may come to you and by which we may receive your grace and your blessing in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would give us a heart that by working of your spirit that desires to have the blessings of your salvation, that desires to grow and to know the Lord Jesus, to walk in his ways, to be fruitful, to understand his will, to be able to obey and practice the things that you desire of us. Father, please work in us as your people, O Lord. Bring that salvation to us, O Lord, and those blessings of salvation through the word, sacraments, and prayer. Father, make us eager and diligent users of these means to pray, Lord, that that they would bless us, that they would benefit us, and to come to them with a desire to be blessed and benefited. Oh, Father, work in your people, O Lord. We thank you so much for giving us these means of grace as ways of conveying that grace to us that you have to to bring so abundantly upon your people. Oh, Father, give your church around the world this this craving for for the means that you have appointed to to be effective, effectual in our lives. They're worthless unless they are effectually applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So, Father, our eyes are to you in faith. We turn from our own way and trust in ourselves to rest in Jesus Christ, who bestows salvation on us. It is to you, Lord, that we look. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing this blessing from the Lord. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with your fathers. May he not leave you nor forsake you that he may incline your hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded your fathers. Amen.